I think it did yeah. bother us. I think it didn't stop our excellence. I know for me, seeing a black woman that knew math, that was leading math with dark skin and long hair and bright nails, I needed that. And our students needed that. And Madison No needed that, but we didn't necessarily, no, none of us really like leaned into saying that. So I want us to stop saying that we were okay and it didn't bother us. When I know at times it did, I just don't think that we let it get in the way of what, of the service that we were giving. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it, where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. I'm Barb Stengel, your host for this podcast. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. I know, I know. I promised that you would hear from Bailey's students this episode, but I'm not able to bring them to you quite yet. That might be just as well because we need to address an issue that I set up with the last two episodes on culture and curriculum. Maybe you noticed. The folks whose voices we highlighted in the culture episode were all black. The folks at the center of the curriculum episode were all white. Now, I had reasons for that. The folks centered were the ones with the most day-to-day -day involvement in the phenomena highlighted. But the effect is still dangerous. Did I inadvertently add to the narrative of black school run by white folks? Or did I make it seem as if the black folks were the fixers and the white folks were the intellectuals? Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie highlighted the danger of the single story in her 2009 TED Talk. I think we better do the same here and complicate our narrative. So to get us started, Listen to what Whitney Bradley Weathers had to say after listening to episode five. So I called Barb last week and I said, Barb, I got a problem. And she said, yeah, okay. And I asked her if she had space for me to process. And I said, Here, here's the danger in the narrative that was put forth in this episode that went out last week. You, you interviewed all white educators that worked in a predominantly black school and the narrative became again and be clear kelly you're featured right you have a sound bite in there but it says it's something like kelly aldridge the math leader and you say 
almost verbatim like I think algebra was a good idea because the kids need to be pushed and that is like the hard stop but Madison is featured for her innovation in terms of algebra and so what I said to Barb is the danger in that is that and Keisha your work with the fashion um, club came up but you weren't talking about it it was white people talking about your work and so what I said to Barb is my problem is that what I've been saying from the beginning is that at Bailey there was a sometimes it became a very scary narrative that black people were like the heavies and the culture people and white people we left the education to white people or we left the academics to white people and so I brought it up to Barb not in an accusatory way because I don't think anybody on that call meant it that way but if you go back and listen to the call you also notice that they don't say the word black at all in the call and i was like that that's that is frightening in terms of erasure i think whitney has a point i tried to set up the cross-racial complexity in culture and curriculum at bailey by talking about teams and teacher leadership first but if whitney's reaction is any indicator either i didn't succeed or at least there's more to say. So the task in this episode is to offer that other story, to complicate what might seem like a single story. This is a story of allyship, what it can mean and what difference it can make. The moral of this story is that all culture and curricular developments at Bailey, innovations, successes, and even failures, depended on the capacity and willingness of educators of color and white educators to work together in a variety of ways for the benefit of students. That story is not a success story so much as an ongoing hard work story, one that demanded a great deal of all the educators in the building, but often not in the same way. We'll talk about how allyship developed over time. To do that, we'll also tease out the differential expectations of those who were white and those who were black, and highlight in particular how black educators felt the responsibility to be excellent educators, but also to be more. At Bailey, race was always an issue, and over the years from 2012 to 2016, most grew in understanding and action. More often than not, folks were able to work together remarkably well, but only by having difficult conversations and entering those conversations with humility and openness. This episode, nearly a decade later, is itself one of those difficult conversations. If we do it right, we'll be able to see how the black and white faculty at Bailey transitioned from no allyship at all to transactional allyship and then to allyship in action, allyship at its best, as Whitney put it. Listen as black academic leaders Keisha Harding and Kelly Aldrich respond initially to my question about allyship, referring not just to their Bailey experience, but to their experiences in education since then. Two things for me that are coming up kind of in my spirit. Number one, I've actually been sitting on this allyship topic for a long time. Like, what is my role as a Black woman in allyship who was also healing from racial trauma in schools, identity issues, being clearly in margin within a marginalized intersectional community, how is say someone who's white and queer gonna expect me to be an uh, an ally 
while I'm still healing, if they're also not being my ally, or, you know, women in STEM, you know, you want you want women in STEM, well, what about Black women, like, specifically, that intersectionality? So I've been struggling with this question of my responsibility to allyship, and what that means for Black people in general, um, Black females, because it just feels like we're constantly being asked to be kind, to be supportive, to also help, to be allies when no one's being our allies or we are still in a process of healing. So how does that even work? And I've been sitting on this for a few months. So the fact that it was um, brought up, like that's uh, um, telling that I think a lot of us are going through that mental processing um, and the cost that question, what is the cost of this, the invisible cost or labor, is physical and emotional and mental labor. It is our mental health. It is needing to take days to ourselves. It is quitting the field altogether because it affects pregnancies and makes you break out in your skin and makes you go to therapy, all of these things. That is 100% the reason why ultimately I had to step out of a schoolhouse. 100% related to the depth that I would go in as a Black woman to support majority Black kids, Black and brown kids, while being questioned almost of like mm -hmm. why, my intent, my motives, all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very hard. This want to just punish these kids. Punish, punish, punish. Like, it just took a toll on me, like a lot. And so... I don't have the question or the answer to how am I going to be an ally when I'm also healing and going through this like, you know, mental and emotional healing. But those two things, I can say, ultimately made me decide to do a different direction within education with different organizations and different people because it took that much of a toll on me in the end. That question was kind of heavy. It's, I don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> I might have to process that for a few days. I feel like I was needed to be present in spaces for behavior type issues, more so than like academic or instructional. So there are a lot of times when I would just be present in a classroom that wasn't even my content area, but just as support of that teacher because they felt more comfortable with me being present in their room while they were teaching because they felt like the t the students behaved differently when I was there. Um, yeah, so that happened a lot. I mean, I didn't mind it, um, but yes, that did occur. I am really seen as a social emotional learning expert, as a good person to do, to facilitate dialogue, as someone who can remove my bias fixer. to collect yeah, as a fixer. I'm a fixer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, man, and, and what's crazy is it's so embedded <laughs> in how we are. Yep. I didn't yep. even put two and two together that like, man, and I did listen to the last episode. They all were white. That's true. And yep. then the episode before that for all the culture that's all black, so like, black. wow, like, it kind of feels so obvious now that y'all are saying it out loud. But how much more work do I have to do or am I currently doing or something that that wasn't even something I walked away with after listening to the second episode. 
And does that mean that I'm just okay? Kind of like Audrey said, I, it didn't bother me. That's my skill, you know? As I listened to Whitney, Keisha, and Kelly, I was struck by the potentially invisible labor associated with being a Black teacher in a school where the majority of the students are Black, but a majority of the teachers are white. Whitney, Kelly, and Keisha named it, taking on particular kids to lighten the load for white educators who are still learning to forge trusting relationships with kids of color, being a fixer when social and emotional conflict crops up, bringing constructive, supportive authority to younger white teachers as they find their way. Now, it's true that these are things that experienced teachers, especially teacher leaders, can and should do for less experienced colleagues. We've already heard Karen Doris Wolfson, a white teacher in the fifth and sixth grades, talk about what she found herself doing for her colleagues, especially, but not only, the novices. Well, and then I know, you know, it's like for me, it was, I'm just taking that kid like one day off their hands, right? But for them, that, that one day was just like, just what they needed to feel, um, to feel like they're not having to do it all, all by themselves, right? And to feel like someone else is, is there helping them, taking the, taking some of their hardest kids off their hands just so that they can have that break. So it makes them feel like someone's true. It's like a, you know, true team mentality that someone else is on their team. Well, yeah, I mean, and I remember too, like being like, I, I need a break from this child. I, but so I, he just needs to sit in someone else's classroom for, you know, 10 minutes and then he can come back. Cause it's like, you know, I just need him out of here for a moment so I can regroup. And then normally they, re they regroup too. Yeah. There was no shame in like failure. Right. Like it was like you if you fail, like you've got other people here, like either trying to help you figure out what to do next um, or trying to help you figure out, like, why this failed. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like the uh, staff was super collaborative. But it's also true that when racial and cultural diversity are part of the mix, there's a temptation to assume it's easier for them, the black teachers, to forge relationships with black children. That may well be true, but it doesn't mean that the extra effort doesn't weigh on them. I think it did yeah. bother us. I think it didn't stop our excellence. I know for me, seeing a black woman that knew math, that was leading math with dark skin and long hair and bright nails, I needed that. And our students needed that. And Madison No needed that, but we didn't necessarily, no, none of us really like leaned into saying that. I was telling Barb like, Dr. Jasper was our mom while we were there. Yeah. And if she wouldn't have been there, I don't know if any of us would have survived the way that we we didn't just survive, we thrived. And I think that that was the difference was that Dr. Jasper was there and she offered the maternal figure that we needed when we needed to go in her office and cry. And we needed to like gnash our teeth around our children like that. Like, so I want us to stop saying that we were OK and it didn't bother us when I know at times it did. I just don't think that we let it get in the way of what of the service that we were giving. I'm starting to get emotional, I feel like a little bit and like I don't want to start crying. I feel like I often suppress. I've learned as a defense mechanism so that we can be great 
to suppress this kind of stuff. If I don't talk about it and say it out loud, it makes it more manageable. It, this stuff for us is a norm, Barb. Like sitting in stress, sitting in this level of stress about this specific topic, it's normal. So even when we're high stress, we don't even know it because we've learned to live on that frequency, if that makes sense. That until you step out of it to a new job, a new school, a new whatever, you never even knew how bad it was. And talking now, like, this is a whole career thing. This is not just a daily thing. This is, this is like my whole career, I feel like, has been like this. And I, and I barely like to say it out loud because it's, it is very painful, kind of like it's very emotional um, to know how much you've been boxed in when you have so much more um, to give. I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to be funny, but I, I do think the, I think that Black women especially, right? So Zora Neale Hurston has this quote that says, Black women, they be the mules of the world, right? And so when we think about a mule, a mule carries far more weight than what it weighs. And it does it because it's the work that has to be done. And so to Keisha's point, I think we suppressed a lot of what we were doing, but I distinctly remember needing to protect protect right in air quotes my like some of my teachers who who we we were almost like encouraged to think about being protective of teachers who were more fragile and whether people said it or not right like that fragility we had that same fragility I just don't think that we were allowed to Mm -hmm. show it we showed it with each other but you know you might have a white teacher who would burst into tears and it was like we would run to the rescue of that teacher to try to help them work through that situation. And I, I don't think that it was on the backs, but I think without, I'm, I'm going to coin this term transactional allyship, where for a minute we have to put down all of, let's face it, though some of those teachers represented the very systems we were fighting to dismantle. And so without having a higher calling to be allies for the children, it would have never worked because it would have been too easy for us to do an us versus them situation. And sometimes it did become us versus them. And it was during those times where we all had to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're fighting an enemy that doesn't need to be fought. The true enemy are the people who are trying to tell our children that they're not going to be successful. But I distinctly remember sometimes being really, really, really resentful of the treatment that certain teachers got over others. Interestingly, the white teachers I interviewed, to a person, did see the expertise of their black colleagues and were quick to acknowledge how they depended on their black colleagues to point them in the right direction. Eighth grade ELA teacher Charles E. Wigley describes both the challenges of working at Bailey as a young white teacher and name checks Bradley, Jasper, and Harding as especially helpful to her personally. And I think that Bailey was the first time I had ever heard the term or looked up the term like 
secondhand trauma. <laughs> like absorbing the day-to-day -day work and the day-to-day -day things that those that you care immensely about the trauma that they are experiencing and not being able, I, I'm the kind of person that's a fixer. I want to fix things. I want to help in some way or whatever way that I can. But ultimately, you know, the downside of being a helper is that you absorb all of that. Um, and you don't, and if you don't have strong, healthy boundaries or don't know how to set those up for yourself, then you suffer, <laughs> suffer personally and can suffer in the dark in terms of mental health kind of issues. And I think that I definitely experienced that um, in my time at Bailey. But I also think that um, the amazing thing was having such a strong support network within the school um, to really um, pick up on that about me and to, to, you know, reach out and get me um, services and support that I needed to, to be the, my best self for kids. I had never had, you know, I think in traditional pathway to licensure, you have your traditional mentor. I had never really had a mentor um, coming into Bailey. And um, to have Bradley kind of step into that role um, and, to, and to really, you know, have us feed off of one another and uh, in each other's ideas. Um, I think that 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 was really beneficial to me personally. Dr. Jasper was just a huge cheerleader, huge supporter, um, still is, <laughs> still is amazing. And I think about all that I learned about school culture from her and just a presence, the way that you talk to people, the way that you interact with people in leadership I, I still I still think about moments with her um, and and wish that wish that people could just observe her um, just day to day um, to, to pick up on on how you treat people. Um, and then I would also say um, I'm trying to think of oh oh Harding Lakeisha <laughs> sorry um, so definitely her um, she. She is still who I aspire to be when it comes to supporting all students and all students, specifically students that might have unique issues or unique needs that, um, you know, a lot of people would just would just immediately turn to to frustration, anger, you know, just blaming whatever on the on the student itself himself or herself. But she never did that. She was so calm, collected. She had a strategy for everything. Um, and I, I just picked up so much from her and learned so much from um, her, particularly in terms of empowering students, letting them have choice and opportunity. Julie Hasfield, whose STEM efforts we heard about in the last episode, recognized just how much she had to learn about race and interactions with kids of color and her black colleague's role in bringing her along. She name-checks Bradley and Harding in particular. This is the part that changed me the most as an educator and, and as a person. I, just from a personal perspective, I mean, Bailey was, um, I think, 95% black, and I definitely, never been around a lot of black people in my life. Um, it's, it was a blind spot for me that I didn't even recognize I had. Um, I realized that I had a lot 
of learning to do. Um, and I, and I came in again with this idea that everyone's equal and everyone's the same and, um, just kind of this liberal white girl <laughs> attitude about race. And I was schooled and it was fabulous. I would say that the students helped me. <laughs> I would say that my black colleagues were absolutely instrumental in bringing me along. They were incredibly patient with me as I started on my race journey. Um, it, it was, you know, there, my, my black colleague teachers had different experiences teaching at Bailey than my white colleague teachers. And we all recognized that. And we were always very open about talking about that together. And, and we were allowed to just be incredibly vulnerable with each other. And I'm so incredibly grateful for that. I mean, two of the most brilliant educators I'd ever worked with were um, uh, Whitney Bradley Weathers and Lakeisha Harding. It's clear that the white teachers at Bailey valued their black colleagues' pedagogical expertise, and they appreciated the ways their black colleagues schooled them. What's not clear is whether they understood the kind of transactional allyship that was the first step at Bailey, or whether they acknowledged, at least initially, what this might have cost their colleagues in extra psychic and emotional effort. Madison No, whom we met last time, noted that she did not, at the time, get the costs her black colleagues might have perceived, but she has a better sense of that several years later. I think I was in survival mode, honestly, a lot of the times. I was I was going home and crying on my way home every night. And I think I was I honestly in a in a reflection of my own like practice, I was very unaware of like the emotional state of people around me. Unless it was like very obvious, you know, like people crying in the hallway and things like that. And Kelly was really good at putting on a great face. Like even if she was struggling, um she had she had it together it always seemed she she had our assessments written she had our scores broken down she was very professional on the things that she did um so we i don't ever remember a conversation where either of us got very emotional but i think i could see that now looking back i think i could see how um her navigating so many different relationships like being in that role i think she was also part of kind of mediating that because she was a really solid character in that space. Like she, she felt kind of immovable. There's another phenomenon that may have contributed to the kind of emotional costs that Whitney and Keisha refer to, a phenomenon that philosophers call epistemic injustice. It appears in three phases, unfairly failing to trust a person's word based on some cultural identity, inaccurately interpreting one's own life and capabilities on that same basis, and refusing to learn about or acknowledge another's competence simply because they represent a marginalized population. It won't come as any surprise that some groups of people are marginalized, not taken as seriously as others in professional and intellectual situations. 
that's a kind of epistemic violence that also takes a toll and that ought to be understood. Kelly talked a bit about that. When I was at Bailey, I think my focus was more so on like getting the job done, right? Any means necessary. Um, And it wasn't until I left Bailey that I realized that how differently I am seen as an intellectual who is highly competent in math. It wasn't until I left that environment and went to another school when I began to be questioned about decisions that I was making um, from all directions. And, And it wasn't honestly until one of my colleagues of a different race was like, I make the same decisions as you, but you're always questioned. And it bothers me because I'm doing this because you came up with the idea, but nobody ever questions me about it, but you did it, you get questioned. And so I was just having this conversation like last week with a colleague as feeling like I am not seen as someone who is intellectual and can actually be an intellectual and do a job that is required by someone with education and knowledge in a field. Um, And so it wasn't until you said what you said just now and then having that conversation last week where it kind of put it together, like maybe when I was at Bailey, I didn't see it that way, but stepping out and looking at it, I can see how that is true because I, I now can see it very clearly in my everyday. What Kelly is talking about the phenomenon that others won't take you seriously because of your race, can lead to a kind of internalized oppression. That is, being questioned and challenged over and over again means that you don't internalize your own competence. You don't see yourself as leader material, as intellectually capable. Bradley spoke directly to this kind of epistemic injustice that leaves one in a state of self-doubt. I even I remember going to the Teacher of the Year award banquet and not thinking I had won. Like, even though there was documentation that said it, I was like, oh, I can't believe they actually thought that I was like, mm-hmm. whatever. But I, I won it at 27 for the city for middle school, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, mm-hmm. I think it was that moment I was like, oh, got it. I am doing things. But mm-hmm. I remember... Um, you know, on the visit and learn classrooms, Sawyer would always send people to visit and learn with me in the hardest freaking mm-hmm. class that I had. It never <laughs> failed. It would always be like Jason. And if even just like Jason by himself, just I'd be like, damn, why do they always send mm-hmm. these people to mm-hmm. my visit and learn classroom? When is this one? When it's five kids instead of when it's 30. And it was because whatever I was doing was engaging those children. And so, I, you know, I, I, I don't think people didn't see me as an academic leader. I think it took me a while to see myself as an academic yeah. leader. is allyship to be fashioned in a challenging teaching setting by folks who don't start out with cultural credibility among the scholars, working with other folks who have the cultural credibility, 
but who are themselves working through their own culture-based trauma. In the first year of Sawyer's tenure at Bailey, it's safe to say that allyship was either non-existent or resulted from happenstance. In the second year, as teaming and teacher leadership took hold, it became more intentional, but still instrumental, that transactional allyship. It was only in the third year, as more black educators found themselves in positions of leadership, that staff members understood themselves in the fullest sense as allies. Let's face it, allyship is not a declaration. It's an achievement. It takes growing awareness of what's needed and honest acknowledgement of what each educator can and can't contribute a willingness to trust that others will bring what they can to a common commitment, a recognition that each has multiple motivations that must be honored, and it takes time. Here's Bradley introducing the idea of transactional allyship, but then extending it beyond what was instrumental toward being more authentic allies. What I told Barb is like, what is missing is this conversation about transactional allyship where white mm. people had to use their privilege to build up the black students and even the black teachers in that school and black teachers had to use our know-how and our prowess to make sure black to make sure white educators were successful that's the big elephant in the room that we're not talking about and it took every day every fiber of our being showing up to be transactional allies and to put allyship in action we weren't talking about it we had to be about it and we had to deal with race confrontationally every day. I'll give you a good example. So my student teacher, uh, her name was Stuart at the time. Stuart came from a, a fairly affluent background, right? And so Stuart didn't know anything about classroom management. So the transaction there was Stuart was basically like, look, I need to teach. I need you to teach me how to build relationships with these students. I'm coming from Franklin. I don't know anything about any anything, right? Mm -hmm. But Stewart's family also purchased 200 books for her classroom and they came in and they her classroom became this mecca for children to read in. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't students that were like, you know, what we would consider um, those that were above grade level. Those students were below grade level and they could not wait to get into her classroom to read. But the trans, I didn't have the resources to create that for her students at all. I didn't have the resources to create that for myself. But she said, I'm going to use, I'm going to leverage the privilege and the connections that I have. And I'm going to bring that, that into Bailey. I think about the same thing with Hasfield, right? Like mm -hmm. Hasfield made no bones about being a white woman and her privilege. And she said, I'm going to take a group of students from the largest project in Nashville and I'm going to take them to Austin. I'm going to put them on a plane for the first time in their lives. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take them out to dinner and give them a three course meal for the first time in their lives. And they mm -hmm. are going to be exposed to this part of the universe. Mm -hmm. And I think like to me, she couldn't have done that if some of us wouldn't have said, we'll take all the rest of those. Like you get to handpick who goes in your STEM elective and we'll take students right like we'll figure it out on the back end but you you run you go forward with that so when i think about transactional allyship like those are the examples that come up for me about how often it was just like a negotiation of i'm going to support you so that you can can move forward or you're going to support me so that i can go forward 
But what made it more than transactional, I th- I think, it, because transactional kind of applies tit for tat. And there was a tit for tat. I mean, there were, as you say, you brought different things and you could offer them. But you did seem to be just committed to the success of the kids. Was that enough? I mean, I would say for me, yes. I would say that the center of my being there was all about the student and their success. And so when I focus my energy on that, then I can see how we both needed each other to help those kids become successful, whether it was showing them a different viewpoint of life or teaching them at a level that we felt that they should be able to reach um, unapologetically. Like We're not going to bend the rules. We're going to push you to that level. And I think that keeping them in mind, keeping the student in mind, both of us needed each other. Like we needed Mm -hmm. those teachers to go into those classrooms and shine in their area of expertise and teach those students to the best of their abilities. And so if that meant that I have to be your emotional support, if that meant I have to pull a couple of students out and have one-on-one conversations with them, if that meant I had to do whatever it is extra on top of whatever, all the other things that I did, if that helped the student to be successful, then that is what needed to be done. So I think there was a need of each other. And sometimes when you're leaning on each other, one person might hold more weight than the other. And I wouldn't say it was an even or equal balance between the two, but there was a need of each other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. As I said, in the third year, allyship blossomed and was likely both rooted in and solidified by the presence of a critical mass of black educators, a number of whom made the move into leadership positions. You have to invite marginalized communities into leadership. That is one key thing that did happen at Bailey. There were all kinds of black leaders in, in leadership specifically, black principals, black instructional coaches, black culture leaders, it was, I believe, it was very strategic on the part of both Dr. Jasper and um, Dr. Sawyer. I believe that move was very strategic. I felt seen and heard. And I did, as I moved into, okay, instructional coach for um, uh, for uh, special education, are you interested in, in moving out of special education into global literacy for me? So I Same. felt very seen and very competent in my career because that space has been created for me. You, I've been invited to many rooms and many tables. When that is not happening to people who are competent, able, all those things, they shut down. I feel like at, at Bailey, at least when Dr. Sawyer was there, he really empowered us. So even though I did have to come in and like save the day sometimes or do some heavy lifting or be more support to the other teachers on the team. Uh, I still felt empowered when he was the principal because I knew that my ideas were being taken seriously 
and were pushed forward. Others, including Charles E. Wigley, also saw the need to make space for marginalized folks in leadership. Um, well, I think that it played out in, um, in relationships, in trust, um, in, in all that you, as a white teacher in, in the school that, service, that served predominantly um, black students, I, I thought about race every day um, and thought about, you know, really reflected on the actions that I take, the things that I do every day, the literature I choose, the questions I ask, the small interactions that I have, you know, how those are perceived. Um, and also just being a, a young woman too, like there, I think that there are some things there as well that I thought a lot about. Um, but I also thought about, um, the interactions uh, with with coworkers as well, and um, one of the things that I really appreciated um, and still really appreciate, and and going to different districts and working in different districts, I don't see this as much as it should be happening. Um, is really just thinking about the leadership makeup of um, of of Bailey, and um, where it went from the first year that I was there to um, the last year that I was there and, and seeing more um, leadership opportunities um, for teachers of color. And I, that's something that I don't think I had thought about in my own life and thought about um, the impact of that, um, not just at Bailey, but, but just in general um, in education. And that was, that's a piece that um, I don't think that there's enough of and I think that it takes white leaders really stepping up and saying, like taking a step back and saying, the, you know, there are the, there's this bias, there are these things um, that are preventing and gatekeeping amazing educators from being in the roles that they should be in and impacting kids in the ways that they should impact them. One very specific reason that they could move from transactional allyship to allyship in action and at its best was the modeling of culture chief Jasper, who is black, and executive principal Sawyer, who is white. I asked specifically about that. I mean, y'all know I moved across the country to work for Christian. And if I wouldn't have seen how he treated Claire, I would have never gone myself. Um, so... What I distinctly remember Christian doing was, and my colleague, Dr. Jasper, and my colleague, Dr. Jasper, and my co-leader, Dr. Jasper, and I'm going to divert to Dr. Jasper's expertise. And, oh, no, I can't answer that because that's Dr. Jasper's leadership. I, I distinctly remember him putting her out front, mm -hmm. even in, in Dr. Jasper, you know, she... She's not an imposing figure, but you know mm -hmm. that she's there, right? And you respect her when she speaks because she's very careful about when she speaks. And Christian is the opposite of that. He's pretty gregarious, right? He's going to talk to himself if you let him. But like <laughs> he, he made it a point for us to acknowledge her excellence and never let us forget her excellence. Neither of their personalities are one that um, to me ever read um, being combative or in competition or um, defensive or like overly passionate to the mm -hmm. point where it can be perceived as, you know, harmful. Neither of them intrinsically just as individuals 
have that type of personality. So it was never going to come into their work anyway, because they're not like that as people to their core. Um, any, as far as um, disagreements, or I never really knew when, when there were disagreements and when there were not, which means whatever was happening was handled you know, appropriately or behind closed doors or what the staff needed to know they knew what people didn't need to know because they, you know, didn't want to worry people or whatever they didn't need to know. Um, I had so much trust for both of them as my leaders, as, and I felt that mutually, I do feel trusted by them as well, that I never had any questions about, you know, are there, there issues or competition between them? I never had that none of that never ever once like came into my aura. Well, I think they both, they both demonstrate the most constructive kind of humility. You know, they're not, it's not a false humility where, oh, you know, oh, me, don't listen to me. Like when they want you to listen to them, they'll tell you. But, But in general, they don't claim for themselves expertise that they may not have or that. Absolutely. Right. So you agree with that? And that's part of, and I think that's part of getting away from transactional allyship into just a stronger, more healthy form of allyship, that ability to be humble and pass along to somebody else who is an expert and you being the person to say, nope, that's not me. That's this person. I'm going to give them the space. I'm going to elevate them right now. That's important to allyship and doing it from a place of being genuine not a checkbox and I'm just going to do it and sit back and make faces or whatever. But like, I genuinely want people to know how brilliant this individual is. The black educators I talked with already pointed toward Dr. Sawyer taking them seriously as educators and as leaders and to the dynamic between Sawyer and Jasper as a guide and even as an inspiration. Another factor in allyship was the presence of open, direct conversation regarding race. Kelly Aldrich reported how she made use of this kind of communication. And I would say I had several conversations with Madison and Alex that year that we were together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about that often. And we had very open dialogue about how she felt and how he felt and I would a lot of times be the voice of the student or the black community to express um, their perspective. And so there was a lot of conversations about how they could better connect with the students coming from a background where they didn't understand um, in worlds that were so different. And we talked a lot about how we can bridge the gap between the two in the classroom setting to try to develop those relationships. So um, it wasn't something that was broadcasted. It wasn't something that we did in front of people, Mm -hmm. but it was a conversation that happened frequently between the three of us. Alex Caceres, the resident Kelly mentioned, documented the value of those discussions in an interview a year ago, citing not just Aldridge's guidance, but also that of black colleagues, Whitney Bradley and David Lewis. Yeah, I think, and and I think that, that again, those lessons that I learned from Bradley and Kelly and David about how to run a support, a a classroom that supports these students, um, 
through strong relationships instead of punishment and like building your, your classroom around them. Um, again, I saw how it was effective. And even, you know, to, even today, I, I hear other teachers who have different perspectives on it. And I, I don't think there's anything that they'll say that will sway me, <laughs> that will sway me uh, because I, I know that it, it can work and that students res- respond to it. Madison, the novice math teacher who took on the day-to-day responsibility for the algebra project, acknowledged the importance of Kelly's mentoring, not just in navigating her relationships with Black students, but also with Black colleagues. In a prior episode, Keisha Harding told us a story about growing as a leader, a story that involved Madison. It was a story that spoke to building trust by pursuing honest and sometimes difficult conversations about race. Here's Madison. Um, I was really touched by the interview where um, Harding, um, where Keisha said something brought up a a discussion that her and I had had, and that was actually mediated by Kelly. I don't know if that, and I don't know if you remember her talking about it, but, but one in which it was me and Kelly and Harding in a, um, and Keisha in a, in a meeting together. And we, um, we're talking about splitting up groups and Keisha taking groups out, um, like small groups out and up to her room during math class. And, and Kelly did the same thing very similarly. Um, but it felt really different. It was a really different dynamic because, um, Kelly and I collaborated on the mathematics a lot more. Um, and so we, we did have those meetings about student scores and things like that. And, um, and had a lot of like insight from Kelly about from her experience in teaching, algebra or in teaching math. I don't, I'm not sure if she taught algebra, but in teaching, um, in teaching math more generally. And so, um, she had, she had lots of great insights, uh, like pedagogically about what math, um, uh, what math would, would be well-suited or, or how students were responding to the curriculum or what the test scores meant or how we could analyze assessments, all of these different things specific to the like quote rigor of math. Um, and in, in one of the meetings that we had, Harding said very outright, just said, I don't trust you. And, and I was like, you know, of course, like, you know, little white me was like, so confused about why I couldn't be trusted in this space. And it makes a lot of sense to me now that I've done a lot of, a lot more learning about that. Um, but I think I was really naive going into it and, um, into the, cultural space that I was entering into, into the pedagogical space that I was entering into, just really inexperienced and really naive. And, um, and that conversation, I just broke down into tears. I mean, I was like very emotional about it. And like, what do you mean? You can't trust me and all these things. And when you interviewed um, Keisha, she talks about that moment as being impactful. And I think it was for both of us. And I, I didn't know it was for her as well as a leader in the school, what she learned from that moment in, um, and that it was that memorable for both of us. And, and, and it kind of spoke to me about the ways that we as uh, white and black colleagues negotiated space together and how we trusted one another and how like all of those lines were drawn or blurred depending on what the, what the context was. Um, so, yeah. So, so that's, I feel like that's where my brain immediately goes to rather than thinking about my relationship with Kelly is, is actually that specific meeting that I remember being really difficult. Yeah. Well, and I remember Kelly being there to mediate that as well. 
Kelly was in that meeting and I, and I remember us, the, the three of us talking, Kelly and Kelly talking to Keisha and Kelly also talking to me about what had happened and about how this meeting went and how to navigate it afterwards. And it was really helpful for me to get her perspective because I trusted her and I am, and I felt like she trusted me in this curriculum um, because a lot of times um, she didn't, I, she didn't do the same kind of like modeling and things like that for in, inside of our class as I saw her do for other teachers. Um, so it, that gave me a, a clue. It, at least it made me feel like I was trusted by her to make decisions for students in, in ways that I thought was sound um, while also bouncing those ideas off of her and saying, what would you do in this situation? Or how do you handle this either for the mathematics or for the children and my relationships with them and the intersection between those two things. In any case, allyship at its best, the kinds of alliances that allowed for each to contribute their best to a shared effort, and that recognize the excellence that all teachers, both black and white, brought to the integration of academic, social, emotional, and moral dimensions in the education of the Bailey scholars grew in the third year the last year that Dr. Sawyer would be the principal. That allyship was confirmed in interactions in school, but also in some personal and professional connections beyond the school day. When Julie Hasfield left Bailey to take up STEM consulting work, she hired Keisha Harding as a colleague specialist, and Keisha noted how important that was to her professional satisfaction. When Whitney Bradley married Carlton Weathers in 2017, two white colleagues, her former resident Catherine Stewart and the science coordinator Sarah Prowell were in her wedding. Sarah comments here on black-white dynamics and on the intertwining of professional respect, personal appreciation, and a shared purpose that led to that kind of friendship, especially among the multiracial teacher leadership team. I believe our leadership team was very balanced with when it came to race. I would I would say it was very predominantly female, but um, I think that that environment we were in as leaders, as educators, I don't I would not say that the black teachers had the culture expertise and the white teachers had the academic expertise. So, and I don't believe that's how it came across to the students either. I don't realize, I think when I started at Bailey, I just kind of came in with this attitude of, well, I was a really great classroom teacher. So I am hoping to learn how to be a great classroom leader. That teacher leader role was brand new and I just wanted to learn. And I don't realize, I don't, think I even thought about what it looked like to take all the powerful knowledge that was around me with the other teacher leaders. That absolutely happened in my time there when we spent so much time together as a teacher leadership team. And because Christian was so intentional about our time together to make sure that we as teacher leaders were getting what we needed to pour into the rest of the team. And so that, that community that we had was, is what allowed me to then learn how to see the 
nuggets of wisdom and the um, skill sets that some other teachers and teacher leaders had that were so powerful that I thought that that's a takeaway. Not every single teacher at Bailey was heroic or even effective, white and black. Not every teacher sought to be allies who would have each other's backs personally as well as professionally. That's not the point of this story. As we've already noted, efforts didn't always succeed at Bailey, but the staff pretty much always tried to grow in mutual understanding and racial justice. This episode marks that as a continuing effort. The bigger point is that multiple stories can be told and should be told. That community requires courage and communication. When things worked out with respect to culture and curriculum at Bailey, it was because educators could be allies across lines of identity and background. It was, more often than is usual at least, allyship at its best. But allyship wasn't enough to keep the building open against the winds of gentrification, Nashville politics, and yes, racial prejudice. It will soon be time to reconstruct the details of Bailey's demise, but not quite yet. First, let's get a clearer sense of what success looked like at Bailey and how that success has left its mark on the lives of the Bailey students. I'll see you next time. And by the way, if this episode stirs up comments or questions for you, please share them with us at chasingbaileypod at gmail.com.